Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu is backing down over judicial reforms. As China approaches domestic and economic collapse, what will be necessary for the United States to deter Chinese aggression against Taiwan? And in other news, the Philippines and China have decided to continue diplomatic dialogue over their disputes regarding the South China Sea. Welcome to Inside Israel News, your home for unbiased and thorough analysis of Israeli news politics, current events in the Middle East, and world news. Or as the internet trolls say, mouthpiece of the Zionist conspiracy, spokesman for the elders of Zion, highly paid propagandist of the Mossad. Yeah, no. This is Inside Israel News. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. Welcome back, insiders. It has been an exciting week in the news, and here we are. A lot going on today. Uh, As always, your host, Isaac Kite, your uh, gregarious Vulcan, bringing reason, sanity, and rationality in a time when the world has gone mad. It is a crazy time out there. Things are just insane. Um... I've got no help for you there, but I do have world news report for you, uh, and I'll be covering uh, all of the topics that I have been telling you about in the last few episodes. Um, I had a, a segment I was going to do on, on Ukraine and Russia, but because uh, Bibi Netanyahu has made some moves politically, I'm going to go ahead and nix that for now, and so I'm going to mix Israeli news and world news today so that I can keep an update keep you guys updated about uh, what is going on in Israel. And uh, then I'm going to talk about China. And I've been telling you guys for a few episodes now that China's coming up. Now that I have shifted gears from doing just Israel in the Middle East and added world news, it has not escaped my attention that I have not had much opportunity to talk about Asia and the Pacific. Uh, so... I'll do more of that. And of course, in the In Other News segment, uh, In Other News, the Facebook page where you can get the news that isn't covered in the U.S. media, the things that are going on around the world that uh, you won't hear about on CNN, Fox News, or any other American news uh, outlet. Um, I I don't know. I don't watch any of those. I've (laughs) long since given up on cable news. Uh, And uh, now when I get my news, I check multiple sources uh, and... uh, uh, before I I accept it as news, because you just can't trust anything anymore. In any case, uh, in other news, follow in other news on Facebook, please. And uh, you will get uh, that news. And one of the news stories being that the Philippines and China have opened a dialogue uh, to talk about uh, their maritime disputes in the South China Sea. And so I will talk about all of that in, the, uh, in other news segment toward the end of the episode. All right. So what's going on in Israel? Uh, I had a, a few people who have approached me in the last week asking about it. And uh, while I usually direct people to the podcast, of course, as your gregarious Vulcan, I'm happy to chit chat with people and, and tell them what's going on. And the, the situation there is really confusing for a lot of people because you get in the American news, especially but even in the foreign press and in BBC news and what have you, uh, you get all of this news that's that's highly biased. 
Here's an example. There was a, a bill introduced that uh, would reform the law to prevent the attorney general from declaring the prime minister uh, incompetent. There is a, a law on the books in Israel that the attorney general, who is an, an independent appointed position, that's not like the attorney general in the United States, who's appointed by the president, uh, confirmed by the Senate and serves at the uh, you know, at the behest of the president. In other words, uh, President Biden could fire the attorney general right now, you know, any, you know, really anytime he wants. Uh, and, uh, you know, Merrick Garland is uh, Joe Biden's attorney general. And when uh, the election comes up, should Donald Trump, who's almost certainly the, the front runner for the Republican nomination and rising in the polls daily, uh, if Donald Trump is nominated, uh, then uh, wins the presidency, he will appoint a different attorney general. He will not keep Merrick Garland. He will not keep the same attorney general that had been before. However, in Israel, the attorney general is seen as a professional politi- um, bureaucratic post rather than a political post. And so uh, while the appointments there are political, uh, they are not <clears throat> precisely political. In other words, the prime minister doesn't appoint the attorney general and doesn't, uh, you know, can't just choose someone that he or she likes, whoever the prime minister of Israel happens to be. In any case, uh, you know, we have here in America the 25th Amendment that allows that if a majority of the cabinet and the vice president, that means that a majority of the members of the cabinet uh, can agree that the president is incompetent, but the vice president must agree, right? If they sign a document saying that the president is uh, incapacitated, unable to, to hold office, you know, physically, mentally, some for whatever reason, just unable to hold the office, then the office devolves upon the vice president as acting president until the president gets better. Uh, and if the president doesn't get better, then the vice president succeeds to the presidency uh, officially. Anyway, so um, that that's how we do things here. In Israel, they had a law that the attorney general uh, at any time that the attorney general decides can just find the prime minister to be incapacitated or unable to serve. Right. And so, you know, that that's troublesome. Just one officer, one person gets to make that judgment call. Now, you know, if the law said if the defense minister, the foreign minister and the attorney general will all sign a document saying that the prime minister is incapacitated, I would say, hey, that's that's not a bad law because those are the leaders of Israel, plus the supposedly objective attorney general. Right. In any case, if you read the article about it on BBC, um, the way they wrote it, uh, it sounded like the law was specifically to protect Bibi, right? Like they're, they're writing a law to prevent the attorney general from declaring Bibi incapacitated, right? Well, Bibi Netanyahu is the prime minister, right? So, yes, if the law goes into effect, it will affect him first. But the law isn't about he in particular. It's about all prime ministers, Right. If uh, Bibi Netanyahu were to uh, retire in a few years, let's say, uh, probably or, or someone else is elected prime minister, the next prime minister could, under the current law, be declared incapacitated by the, the attorney general. Right. And, and you get this situation. You suppose that there's a left wing attorney general and a right wing prime minister and the left wing attorney general just doesn't like the prime minister's policies and says, uh, you know what? The prime minister is incapacitated or vice versa. Left wing prime minister, right wing attorney general. I mean, these kinds of things can happen. So one person shouldn't do that. So the law was to change that so that that couldn't happen that way. But again, if you read the news, you would think it was all about Bibi. 
because that's what the media is talking about. And so, you know, they didn't have that explanatory paragraph that I'm giving you now because this is Inside Israel News. And I make sure that when I do my news commentary, I try to explain everything to you in, uh, you know, boring and uh, meticulous and tedious detail. Right. So you end up knowing everything. Uh, you may be bored to tears by the time the episode is over, but you know everything and you know what's likely coming down the road. Uh, you know, I've given you the game theory version of what I think is about to happen. So anyway, there's been a lot going on. I've told you guys about the particulars of the, of the judicial reform. It, it comes with several components. Uh, the main thrust of it being that the uh, the. Le the Knesset, the legislature um, and electoral body, the parliament, would be able to override the Supreme Court on certain issues. Not all of them, but certain issues. And that's been the main point of contention uh, because the Supreme Court has been interfering in politics in Israel, striking down deals that have been made, laws that the Knesset has passed and um, interfering like judicial activism. We've seen that here in the U.S. with policymaking in Israel. That's the rights argument. I tend to agree, not as completely, but I tend to agree with them. And I always tell you my opinion so you can filter out any potential bias. Uh, the left's opinion is the courts are just fine. They have a right to interfere. Uh, they're just protecting human rights, checks and balances, and the rule of law. That's their argument, okay? So the left has gone completely bonkers over this proposal uh, that would uh, allow the, the Knesset to override the Supreme Court. They've gone out in protest. They're calling it a coup. They're threatening a civil war, which is ridiculous and asinine, as I've um, uh, told you before. You know, there's not going to be a civil war in Israel. I, I covered that a couple episodes back. Neither is Israel to become a dictatorship. Oi. So... Um, as I explained to everyone, the reason there won't be a civil war, among other things, is that, that Israel is a democracy and a free society. There will be compromise. In free societies, there's compromise. Okay, now in America, we once saw compromise break down when the South was no longer willing to compromise over slavery, seeing that things weren't going their way. They just decided to bolt from the Union, and that led to war. That was a bad move. <laughs> destroyed the South for 150 years. But, um, you know, if, if Israel has a civil war, that'll destroy Israel. I mean, Israel is surrounded by its enemies, right? I mean, you have Hezbollah and, and Iran right up in, in Syria, right? I mean, they'd, they'd love to have chaos in Israel and an opportunity to swoop down in and their missiles and their genocide, right? Uh, you've got Hamas in the Gaza Strip, uh, Fatah, Islamic Jihad, and to a lesser extent, Hamas in uh, Judea and Samaria, what the international press erroneously calls the West Bank. In any case, that is, um, those are big problems. Right? Israel can't have this kind of conflict. Anyway, so uh, this is the nature of these reforms. Uh, one reform that looked like it was going to go through was the selection committee change. I've mentioned that before, that the current selection committee includes six members, two from the Knesset, who represent the elected officials, two from the Bar Association, and two justices of the Supreme Court, which means that judges and lawyers are basically responsible for the appointments to the court, and uh, politicians don't get a lot of say. Bibi's proposal would add more members to the, select, uh, the selection committee so that a majority would be uh, appointed by the Knesset. I will tell you my opinions, right? I support political appointment 
of judges. I support political appointment of judges in uh, the Supreme Court of the United States, in Kansas, in California, in Texas, and in Israel. If you ask me, I say there should be discretion for the governor, president, prime minister, or Bundeskanzler, as the case of Germany, to appoint whomever they please to be on the court, because that discretion is valuable. And if they abuse that discretion, then it's up to the people to punish them for abusing it. For example, uh, when Joe Biden said, you know, and I, I'm saying I support political appointment to the Supreme Court, I thus think everyone who is on the current Supreme Court belongs there because they were properly appointed, vetted, given all kinds of uh, uh, political treatment. Sadly, both Justices Thomas and Kavanaugh had these ridiculous, asinine uh, misconduct, allegations of misconduct, these circuses around their appointments. And that's really terrible. But in any case, that, that you know, is unfortunate. Uh, but everyone who's on the Supreme Court belongs there. And the only exception I make to that is uh, Justice Ketanji Jackson, right? Here we have this, this situation where the president came right out and said, I'm going to appoint a black woman. And it's like, well, so those are your criteria for choosing a judge? And I was kind of ticked about it because this is, you know, a really great opportunity for Sri Srinivasan, who's a Hindu and of Indian descent, a very competent judge, sits on the uh, the Washington, D.C. appellate court. Now, Sri Srinivasan and I would not agree on a lot of things when it comes to law and judiciary uh, because I am a conservative and he is not, you know, um, and I, I joke about that. You'll hear me talk about, you know, I'm an old school West Coast working class liberal. Uh, but 20 years ago, what was a West Coast working class liberal is now a conservative because, you know, I believe in free speech and, you know, family values to a certain degree. You know, family is good. Uh, and I believe in God and I want to be able to continue to do those things. I don't believe that Wokies should be able to tell me what I'm allowed to say uh, and think and, and, you know, whatever they whatever they want, whatever crazy thing they want next week is their thing. That's why I'm a conservative. In any case, um, choosing justices that way is just wrong. And so that ruined the whole appointment process uh, while, um, you know, and of course, you know, as I've mentioned before, she was soft on sex crimes, which is a big no-no for me. Uh, but anyway, so eight of the nine justices, I think, belong there and, and were competently appointed uh, and all is well. Uh, but one, I, I disagree with the selection criteria, but that's a political question. Of course, she was appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate. Therefore, she's on the Supreme Court and there she is. I, it's the only appointment that I take issue with, though. All the rest of them were done uh, properly through political channels. Now, while you know Barack Obama appointed a uh, gay Jewish woman in Elena Kagan to the Supreme Court, she he did not go out and say, you know, um, everyone, I'm appointing a gay Jewish woman to the Supreme Court, and I'll tell you what her name is next week. It, you know, he went and appointed Elena Kagan, and then we could assess whether she should be on the Supreme Court based on uh, her judicial record, her qualifications. Was she qualified? Yes. Should, you know, do I agree with her politics and her, her rulings? No, generally not. But the point is, at that time, Barack Obama was the president, the Democrats controlled the Senate, so, you know, she got on the court. It's just how these things work. Anyway, so uh, I hope that the Judicial Selection Committee reform does go through. 
Uh, but as they get close to passing that uh, here, uh, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, whom I have praised on this podcast in the past as being uh, a very well-respected and well, uh, uh, very competent defense minister, uh, came out just a few days ago and said that they should put a halt to all of the judicial reforms and, uh, you know, re-examine them, Right. And uh, a couple of other people, Amichai Hikli, uh, Hilki, Amichai Hilki, <laughs> who uh, is a, a member of Likud, uh, several other Likudniks have come out and said that uh, uh, they believe that the um, the reform should be repackaged, resold. You know that they're they're opposed to them in the current form, and so. Uh, there it is. And, and so my, like I said, and uh, a few times the podcast, the, the override of the Supreme Court just goes too far. It's not a coup. It doesn't mean that Israel ceases to be a liberal democracy. Uh, if anything, it's democracy that's being fulfilled here. The voters voted for Likud and the religious Zionists and the Haredi parties, the, ultra, the orthodox party. They always use this term ultra orthodox. They're orthodox. They, you know, they're orthodox Jews. Anyway. Uh, and the Orthodox, they um, people voted for those parties knowing that they supported judicial reform, knowing that they supported an end to judicial activism and changing the way judges are selected. Therefore, the reform is democratic. Now, the reform just goes too far. It's like one of those things that in 2008, when Barack Obama was elected president, people were voting generally for uh, you know universal health care. Right. And, and during the rainbows and unicorns and yes, we can of the hope and change campaign, uh, it sounded really good. Oh, we can we can afford to pay for everyone's health care. Yay. And, you know, let's not think about what that might cost or how that might be structured. And then, of course, the uh, ACA uh, Obamacare bill was written and it was a disaster. If if you could have taken the details of it and explained all of those details without the politics objectively to the average American, not one average American would have supported it. If you could have explained the bill to people on the far left, they wouldn't support it because it doesn't do any of the things they wanted it to do. Obviously, conservatives opposed the whole thing on principle. So, you know, there was really no base in America that supported the way Obamacare was written, but they had voted in 2008 in the for the general concept of universal health care. Something like that has happened here. The people of Israel voted, and a majority of the voters voted for parties that support judicial reform, reducing judicial activism and um, allowing court justices to be appointed more by political, uh, you know, political appointees by elected officials, right? Um, but the details of it are not what they specifically voted for. So that's the situation that we have going on there. Uh, I said, I predicted, I told you it was going to happen, that BB was going to seek a compromise. And then he started to sound like he was going to seek a compromise. And now, um, after he's had to fire Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, he has said uh, that he supports freezing the legislation, you know, holding, holding back until they've had a chance to review. Uh, now, Hilke said uh, he thinks they should look at um, at Benny Gantz's proposed compromises, and uh, we'll see. You know, Benny Gantz had some ideas on how to moderate. So, you know, reform the selection committee and then 
find another way to reduce judicial activism. I, I mean, the fact is, if you reform the selection committee, you'll get different judges, and then those judges will, will be more in line with what the voters want, okay? Kind of like when Donald Trump took office as president in 2017, he began appointing a huge number of judicial appointees to the various levels of the federal courts. Uh, many of those people are still there. In fact, you know, he appointed a third of the Supreme Court, right? Three of the justices there, uh, you know, Gorsuch, uh, Kavanaugh, and now uh, Coney Barrett are all Trump appointees. So, you know, putting better people on the courts will change the courts. But then even if there are conservative activists on the court, uh, conservative judges on the court that are not activist, if they feel that there's a human rights violation or something is going on that that is illegal, they will, of course, strike that down. So that maintains the court as an independent body. OK, the larger issue, as I've explained a couple times, is that Israel was founded by European descended Jews, Ashkenazic Jews, as we say. Um, Ashkenaz means Germany uh, and that's what we call Germany. So, you know, essentially German Jews, but it refers to European Jews at all. And mostly, you know, throughout Poland, Russia, Jews who came from the Middle East uh, are called Mizrahi, Eastern Jews, right? Mizrahi, East, people of the East. So, um, you know, after Israel was founded, 800,000 Jews were forced to flee Arab countries, Iraq, Egypt. Um, you know, I, I have a uh, a personal friend who spent three years in a concentration camp in Egypt for being Jewish, you know, along with a lot of other Jewish young men, uh, because in the 1960s, you just, you know, the Jews were just being rounded up by the government, basically. And as soon as he got out of jail, out of prison, what did he do? He flew out of the country as quickly as he could to France. And then his wife was able, you know, his future wife was able to join him and they made their way to the United States and came here with nothing started with nothing and built themselves a, a life here, you know? So, um, so this is, um, you know, this, this is the challenge. Those people moved to Israel in large part. Most of those 800,000 moved to Israel. And now the Mizrahi are leading the country and they're more religious and they're more right wing. They support free market economics uh, and you have them, the Orthodox, and with religious Zionists, the far right. People who live in Judea and Samaria, people who support right-wing policies, uh, people who are tired of the terrorism, and all of this in a time when, just 20 years ago, we, we watched the uh, Palestinians sabotage the peace deal and found out the peace was never going to happen. And as soon as that happened, of course, there were the rocket attacks, and then we had problems with Iran and all of this. Since its founding, Israel has also ignored a lot of internal domestic social issues because there were the external conflicts, right? So, you know, during the Second World War, for example, uh, there was this general agenda of, look, you know, all, all Americans are Americans and greater integration and that kind of thing. But the government did nothing about civil rights in the South while the war was on, right? It wasn't... You know, we weren't we weren't here to do a whole bunch of kick up a bunch of dust in the domestic sphere. We were all going to work together to get the war done and then figure that out after the war. Unfortunately, it took entirely too long to address that issue. Anyway. So um, <clears throat> the point is, Israel is changing. The left leaning European Jews are no longer uh, the majority in Israel. They don't have the the votes 
to maintain Israel as a secular left-wing country. The right is taking over, and it's becoming more religious, and they don't like that, and they're upset about that. And this judicial reform means that the courts won't be able to restrain the right as much anymore. Uh, and some re judicial reforms are almost certainly going to pass. Anyway, real quick, is the government going to fall apart? Uh, I'm hearing a lot of people say, oh, look, Bibi's about to resign. The government's about to fall apart. Probably not. Uh, the thing is, Likud is the, is the most centrist party in this coalition. Uh, the, the Orthodox parties are to the right of Likud in terms of being more religious. They know that Bibi Netanyahu is their safe bet. Right. They, they back him completely. They support him completely. If he lose, if they go to a new election, they can only lose. Right. I mean, maybe BB gets reelected and, and the right wing coalition returns. Probably not. Uh, possibly not. I should say uh, polls show that that things are basically the same place they were when the last election happened. Uh, the polls skew a little bit to the left. So as I, I read out a poll a little while back, things haven't really moved much. So it shows you that, you know, voters generally still support the coalition and support uh, its agenda. They just the details of it have become problematic. In any case, there's all these changes going on. A lot of people don't like it. And that's what's going on in Israel. Um, they're addressing the domestic issues and concerns that that people, you know, those those are bubbling to the surface because external threats are uh, reducing in, in power and intensity. Uh, people are concerned about, OK, well, I'm not going to ignore these domestic issues anymore. I want to deal with them because they're important. And there's this European Mizrahi thing, Ashkenazic Mizrahi thing, European versus Middle Eastern Jews uh, going on. And, uh, you know, also we're handing off politics to a new generation, right? Bibi Netanyahu is part of an older generation, uh, like Ehud Barak, uh, who used to lead the country. Uh, and he's, you know, when he does choose to retire, whoever succeeds him will be from the new generation, right? Uh, Yair Lapid, Benny Gantz, Dir Barkat, um, Yoav Galant, all of these men, uh, and uh, even a few women who are involved in, in Israeli politics, uh, they're all from a younger generation than Bibi. And so it's a handoff of a new generation, right? Uh, looks like right now between Joe Biden and Donald Trump and here in the U.S., we're going to have at least four more years, one way or the other, of boomers leading the country. Uh, but, you know, probably the next president will be a Gen Xer, uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, possibly, possibly Hakeem Jeffries, the House uh, minority leader now, uh, who's got a lot of people excited about him, uh, also uh, an exer. Um, although Ron DeSantis is born in, in 78, so actually he's very close to being an exennial, like myself, uh, being you know born in 1981. Uh, I'm right on the border, right on the, the line. Some people say that, gen, that millennials begin in 1980, some say 84. So, you know, I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway, I consider myself an elder millennial, but, you know, the, the term exennial goes around and, and that kind of thing. In any case, there will be a, a, a change in generation probably by 2028 uh, presidential election uh, in terms of who, who is going to be, uh, which generation is going to be in power. And in Israel, the same thing is going to happen. It's happening right now. BB is maybe serving his last term, maybe he can run again after this, but at some point, Bibi Netanyahu will no longer be able to lead the country. And whenever that is, a new generation will take over. So a lot's going on in Israel. It's a pill. 
Um, been a lot of protests. A lot of reservists who are serving in the IDF's reserves have threatened to resign, and they're they're saying they will no longer defend the country if the judicial reforms pass. That was a significant part of what drove Yoav Gallant to take his stand. I have told you, in my opinion, the override to the Supreme Court goes too far, uh, but I support the reform to the Selection Committee. I, I mentioned that here just a bit ago, uh, so you can filter out my bias. Uh, but <clears throat> I tend to agree with Gallant and now Bibi that they need to pull back from this, rethink all of this, the reforms go too far, uh, and then uh, come up with a package that is more temperate. You know, but I hope they pass the selection committee reform sooner than later uh, as well. That needs to go through uh, so that they can start getting uh, a different set of judges on the court. In any case, that's the Israeli news. It's updated. Now you know what's going on. Uh, the Passover break is coming up, so the Knesset is about to go out of session for a few weeks. Um, ends up being almost a month. Then they'll come back and they'll uh, start to address these issues again. If uh, they go ahead and freeze the reforms, then the issue will come back up probably in the summer. Um, but we'll see. I mean, there, there's there's lots of, uh, you know, there are a lot of other issues that need to be addressed and a lot of other things going on. And of course, there's the wave of terrorism uh, that's coming up. That would be happening if, you know, right-wing, left-wing government wouldn't matter if Yair Lapid was prime minister or Nir Barkat or anyone else. Uh, the fact is the Palestinians, uh, because of the Abraham Accords are isolated and irrelevant. And so they have no choice but violence. That's the only path they have in, in support of their racial supremacist agenda to attack Israel and try to maintain some relevance on the world stage, because otherwise uh, they just disappear into obscurity. It's like, oh, Israel, uh, what's going on with Israel? Well, they made peace with some of the Arabs, but not the Palestinians. Oh, OK, whatever. Uh, so the Palestinians have to make trouble to, to keep themselves relevant. Anyway, with that, uh, when I get back from the break here, I will be discussing China and what's necessary to deter China. Welcome back. Now that we're back from the break, I'm going to talk about China. Uh, going to do a little bit of history I know you guys uh, love when I talk about history, I hope, because I love history very much. And um, this bit of history is relevant, and you'll find out why here in just a minute. As I've discussed before, uh, when it came to U.S. military preparation for the Second World War, my favorite time in history, by the way, uh, if you if you know, I, I've spent so much time, you know, enjoy learning about the Second World War, I, I just... Something I enjoy very much uh, and uh, current events since then. And in fact, in my YouTube watch later <laughs> uh, folder, I have, you know, videos about the Imjin War between Korea and Japan in, the, in, in medieval era and uh, all kinds of other things. But I never get around to them because I'm so busy now staying up with current events. <laughs> and when I when I'm not studying current events, I'm looking at, you know, World War Two history for the most part. Anyway, uh so I have talked about how in 1940, the United States passed, the Congress passed the Two Ocean Navy Act, right? Uh, Britain, we counted on the British Navy and the French Navy to protect the Atlantic. And in a matter of months, Germany invaded the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, and France 
The British had to evacuate from Dunkirk, and all of a sudden France surrenders. So the entire French Navy is gone from the equation. Now, you know, potentially allied to Hitler, right? Hitler almost got a navy out of that. That's one of the reasons uh, Prime Minister Winston Churchill ordered the French Navy destroyed. In any case, uh, so the United States no longer had Britain to look after and France to look after the Atlantic. The British were busy with a war. France was gone. And so uh, Admiral Stark went to Congress and said, look, the United States Navy is inadequate to protect the country. Uh, and of course, uh, Congressman Carl Vinson, the uh, patron saint of the Navy, we even named a, an aircraft carrier after him years later, one of the Nimitz class ships, um, big carrier, right? Uh, Carl Vinson, the Democrat from Georgia who was, uh, you know, doing a lot of the naval procurement work at the time, put together the Two Ocean Navy Act, and they ordered eighteen, you know, seven more battleships, eighteen aircraft carriers, uh, just you know, dozens of cruisers, hundreds of destroyers and submarines. Uh, that uh, these would be the ships that would fight the Second World War. Right in in nineteen forty two, right after the war started, we were fighting with our pre war ships, ships like the Enterprise and the Saratoga aircraft carriers, right? But in 1943, all of a sudden, the Two Ocean Navy Act ships started to arrive. Uh, ships like the Essex-class aircraft carrier, uh, and then, you know, the, the various cruisers, the Cleveland-class cruiser and so on, that uh, Brooklyn-class heavy cruiser, the cruisers that would ultimately be the backbone of the U.S. Navy going forward, the destroyers, the submarines that we needed in order to fight that war. And, of course, the Two Ocean Navy Act ordered 15,000 naval aircraft, which allowed uh, companies to start developing planes like the TBF Avenger, the uh, F-6F Hellcat, the Corsair, the, you know, the planes that we think of as, you know, because a lot of the history, you know, you get into the 1943, 1944, you start seeing more of those planes uh, leading the war effort rather than uh, the older planes from the pre-war era. In any case, those ships were all ordered before the Second World War started, right? Two Ocean Navy Act was passed in June of 1940, right? And so we had, uh, you know, all, a year and a half of shipbuilding and aircraft development and all of this sort of thing before the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor, right? But what if the Two Ocean Navy Act had been passed sooner, right? Was that the right time to pass it? At that point, when the Two Ocean Navy Act was passed in June 1940, as I said, after the fall of France, uh, it's like the U.S. Navy now needs to be able to deter Japan in the Pacific and protect the Atlantic, because we can't count on the British and the French to do it anymore. We need more ships, right? We need to, to double the U.S. Navy. And the, the main, you know, what was revolutionary about the Two Ocean Navy Act was the focus, the emphasis on carriers. I should mention, by the way, the seven battleships that they ordered, two more Iowas and the five Montana-class battleships, none of those were built. Those were all canceled during the war because it became very clear, very evident, uh, as soon as the war began, that the aircraft carrier was the ship of the capital ship of the Navy now, right? That the, the most important ship was one that launched aircraft, not that fired big guns. In any case, um, so what if that had been passed in a more timely, at a more timely moment? Okay. It took almost four years, right? 1940 to 43 for a lot of ships, 44 for some others. So basically, you know, 1943, we started finishing up a lot of ships. A lot of them came into service in 1944. And um, so we 
you know, we have these these ships coming into service then. Okay. But imagine for a moment if the Tosha Navy Act had passed in 1937. And ask yourself how that might have affected history. We're in counterfactual now. 1937 wasn't a great year for America. Domestic politics dominated the year. Uh, Roosevelt had been reelected the year before, and so you had this triumphant reelection and, and big win for the New Deal. But then uh, the Supreme Court started striking down New Deal policies, and pretty soon Roosevelt was talking about packing the Supreme Court. That would go on into 1938 until the court started backing down on some of his New Deal reforms. Speaking of the New Deal, uh, because the New Deal reforms were economic, tra you know, tragically, tragically wrong for the economic circumstances uh, and destructive to the economy, for example, the alphabet soup of programs that that were out there that uh, were designed to get people working took a lot of people out of the labor market, meaning that there wasn't cheap labor available, right? And the lack of cheap labor raised the cost of production. And honestly, if you, if you produce a good and no one in the country can afford to buy it because the labor costs were too high, there's no point in producing it, right? So fewer things are produced, people had fewer jobs. So in 1937, the country started sliding into a recession, a recession during the recovery from an economic depression is not even supposed to be possible in economics, right? Like, you know, if you if you didn't know that this was history, if you didn't know that it was fact, somebody tells you, oh, yeah, you know, uh, the depression started in, in 1929. It got really bad in 30 and 31. Uh, and by 1937, we were in a recession. And you're like, what? <laughs> we're, we're six years into a recovery from a depression and you have a recession? That's not possible. How can that happen? Well, the New Deal, that's how that can happen. Um, you know, Herbert Hoover had taken all the wrong policies and uh, FDR just doubled down on that. In any case, also in 1937, the AFL, American Federation of Labor and the CIO were going at it. They were not one organization. Today, they're the AFL-CIO. They're together, one organization. But at the time, they were separate uh, unions, big unions, you know, conglomerates of unions, and they were going at each other. They hated each other's guts. They were fighting. People were hurt. There was violence. Uh, and it was a huge embarrassment to the Roosevelt administration, uh, which saw itself as a working man's party, right? And, and working man's administration. So 1937 was a disaster for American domestic policy and definitely not the time to introduce a bill to spend a whole bunch of money building warships. But when you look at the international situation, right, in 1936, the Japanese announced that they were leaving the London Naval Treaty. This was a successor to the Washington Naval Treaty that limited the Washington Naval Treaty limited battleship tonnage. And so, you know, everyone, you know, stopped building battleships. And that was great because these are, these are ships are expensive. Uh, Britain and America could afford to build as many as we wanted and had planned a bunch of them. But Surely we could find something else to spend our money on or as the Harding administration wanted to in the in, in the 20s, not spend the money, you know, cut taxes, reduce the size of government uh, and Coolidge that followed him uh, again, the same. So, uh, you know, we we pushed the country, you know, Britain, France, Italy in Europe and the United States and Japan agreed to this treaty. 
And it was a lifesaver for the Japanese because uh, they couldn't, they definitely couldn't afford the battleships they were building. It was bankrupting Japan. Uh, not to mention it was, you know, consuming a lot of their industrial capacity. Japan has a much smaller, had a much smaller industrial base than the United States at the time. So it was a good deal for Japan. But Japanese nationalists took it personally because while Britain and the United States were at par, they could have the same amount of battleship tonnage. The Japanese could have 60% of that battleship tonnage. Again, it was actually a really good deal for Japan. And the point is, is very valid. Britain and America had multiple oceans to protect, right? And Japan had one. And, you know, defending their home islands does not require a huge navy the size of the United States or British navies. Well, the London Naval Treaty extended that and added aircraft carriers, cruisers, and, and other ships to the tonnage so that uh, navies were being restrained in size. And, and that was a good notion because it, it, it was one of those things where, you know, we, we decided we weren't building battleships anymore or big cruisers and, and what have you. So America converted Lexington and Saratoga, which were going to be big cruisers, into aircraft carriers. The Japanese converted battleships like Akagi and Kaga into aircraft carriers. Experimental things. And after a little while, we started to look around and say, hey, these aircraft carriers are actually more powerful than battleships. Maybe we should be limiting them too. Anyway, Japan announced that they were leaving the London Naval Treaty in 1936. That was a shot across the bow. That was when America should immediately have left the the London Naval Treaty as well, saying, look, if Japan's leaving, we have to leave too, and started building again. And ultimately, we did start building new battleships, the uh, the North Carolina class, North Carolina and Washington, that would play a very vital role in the early war, uh, defending aircraft carriers and, of course, the battleship Washington at Guadalcanal. So um, these are these are very important moves that we took right then. The Japanese began building the Yamato and Musashi and the Shinano, these huge super battleships that are just, you know, mega, mega battleships with 18-inch guns, just huge, huge ships. Anyway, uh, then there was the Marco Polo Bridge incident that the Japanese army uh, played up. It was this incident. It was not entirely clear exactly what happened, but, you know, maybe somebody, you know, on the Chinese side fired a few shots. And it's not clear if any Japanese casualties happened, but the army swore up and down that Japanese soldiers had been killed and they tried to turn it into a big incident. Pretty soon, a million Japanese soldiers were moving into China, you know, marching into China. And there was not a darn thing the civilian government could do about it. You know, Prime Minister Kanoe tried to curtail this, tried to prevent them from going to war with China. Uh, but there was, you know, the army was doing it, right? It showed that the, the government had no control over the army. And the one person who could have restrained the army, the emperor, uh, had no intention of doing so. Uh, whether he, you know, he, he certainly understood that he could have, um, but he didn't, right? So anyway, uh, Japan invades China. Well, that invasion and the rape of Nanjing that followed when the Japanese captured the erstwhile Chinese capital. Uh, terrible, horrible story there. When these horrors took place, all of that, the attack on China, all of that, that was a provocation to the United States. Our first foray into international politics was the open door policy in China. The United States prevented European and Japanese colonizers from dividing China up like they had done to Africa. You know, France can have this piece, Japan can have that piece, Britain will take this piece. Why? Because we knew America wouldn't get a piece. So we sit there and we say, hey, we're a world power now. 
in, in the late 19th century, just leave China open. It'll remain an independent state and we can all take advantage as colonizers, right? That worked. You know, worked well for us. Not so much for the Chinese people who, you know, sadly had to deal with this colonial nonsense. But it was certainly better for them than being carved up into cantons ruled by France, Britain, and Japan, least of all. Anyway, 1937, when these things are happening, would have been the ideal time to pass the Two Ocean Navy Act. America and Japan hadn't yet come to blows. We weren't quite at the point of confrontation that we would be in by 1941. Had the Two Ocean Navy Act or something like it been passed in its time, then those ships would have been arriving in 1940 and 1941, right? Even 1938. If, if we passed the Two Ocean Navy Act in 1938, 41 and 42, we'd be having those ships. So when the Japanese were thinking about bombing Pearl Harbor, America would have, you know, half a, half a dozen new aircraft carriers in addition to our pre-war carriers and more coming, Right overwhelming Japan's uh, military power. And that would have uh, changed the dynamics. Almost, it is almost certainly the case that if the Two Ocean Navy Act had passed in 1937 or 1938, that the war wouldn't have happened. Because if the Navy had been any larger than it was, the Japanese wouldn't have ventured the attack. Yamamoto's whole purpose in attacking Pearl Harbor was to destroy uh, at least a couple of American aircraft carriers and enough of the battleship fleet to keep America from acting against the Japanese while they captured the, the South Pacific, the Philippines and, you know, Malaysia, Indonesia, all of those places. Uh, unfortunately, still colonial possessions at the time, the Dutch East Indies, British Malay, Singapore, British colony, any case, all these places the Japanese wanted to take and they took. And there wasn't a darn thing the U.S. Navy could do about it because we were too weak, Right. That was the point. Well, if we'd had this whole other Navy available at the time, right, we could have struck back and would have been much more dangerous. So that could have prevented the war. What is the, how does that lesson apply today? The way that lesson applies today is we're at a very critical point with China and China is coming up on some very dangerous times. And if we step up now and prepare ourselves better prepare ourselves for war with China, we're much less likely to have a war. You know, the best deterrent to war is to make it so that war is too costly for your enemy. Well, some war games have been conducted very scientifically with, within reason, and they have shown that while generally the U.S. would win such a conflict in terms of preventing China from conquering Taiwan which is their goal, right? Uh, it would be extremely costly from the US, for the U.S. Uh, and that is something I'm going to talk about in the next segment. But those war games and you know, other thought processes lead us to a set of conclusions of things that we could do now as the United States if we were being smart to shift our focus to China. And that also means shifting our focus away from Russia. Right. Russia is, is being defeated in Ukraine. They're being ground down. The Russian military as a conventional force is no longer an effective fighting force. And even if the Russians had the money to rebuild their force, if the war ended tomorrow and they had the money to keep rebuilding their forces, they still wouldn't have, uh, 
you know, in 10 years, they still wouldn't be a serious threat in terms of their conventional forces. And as I've talked about before in the episode about uh, what would World War III look like today, Russia's nuclear arsenal is of questionable quality, right? They inherited it from the Soviet Union. A lot of those missiles are old. The launchers are old. Would these missiles actually fly toward their targets? is not entirely clear. Obviously, that doesn't mean we go out and start a nuclear war. I'm not saying that. You know, oh, don't worry about it. The Russian missiles won't fly. Let's not, let's not gamble on that. That's not a, a dice roll I want to take. You know, we come up snake eyes on that. That's really bad for the U.S. But um, in any case, the fact is uh, Russia is in decline, very quick decline right now. They're, they're finished. And uh, their economy is being propped up, held together with spit and toothpaste. Uh, duct tape might even be too expensive for the Russian economy right now, uh, using money from oil reserves and what have you. And it's not going to last. Uh, and the Russian economy is headed for, for broke. And demographically speaking, the population of Russia is going to decline by half by 2050. So Russia's done. Okay. Uh, they're already in their demographic collapse. Uh, Putin thought he'd have a quick, easy victory in Ukraine. It didn't work out that way. And now he's basically destroyed Russia. So there you go. That's a big problem. But um, China is coming up on that. Uh, so before I go on, I want to talk about uh, this guy, David Zion. Uh, Z-E-I-H-A-N, right? This guy is awesome. Now, he, he has all these videos on, uh, you can find him on YouTube. He's, he's done a bunch of different talks. Um, he talks a lot about uh, the, um, the demographic situation, the economic situation, things that are coming up. Uh, he's written a book, The End of the World is Only the Beginning. I have it in my list of books to read, <laughs> along with a lot of Isaac Asimov and, uh, you know, Ted Cruz and other current events books that I like to read uh, as well. So this is, this is, you know, you can find his videos online. I'll, I'll post one on the Facebook page so that you can see it there if you, if you want to find it. But you can find it. You know, David Zion. Z-E-I-H-A-N. Uh, and he talks a lot about this demographic and economic shifts and all the things that are coming up in Europe and all of the uh, issues in China. Basically, China has about 10 years before they're going to face a massive demographic and economic collapse. Sometime in the late 2020s, China is just going to fall on its face. Their population is going to decline by about half, according to UN projections, by the end of the century. So they're just a little bit behind Russia. Right. Russia's collapsing now, like in the present tense, Russia's collapsing. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're they're going to be half this, their population by 2050. China's got till 2100. Good for China in that regard, but not good for their economy now. So, you know, they're they're not a big threat there in that regard. Uh, and so the issue is, what do we do with China between now and then? They're building up their military. We've spent the last 20 years uh, dealing with the war on terror, asymmetric threats. We haven't been planning this kind of conflict with China or Russia, a major conflict. Now we're getting back into that thinking. NATO is spending its money building up the, the NATO forces. Europe has to remilitarize to a certain degree. So we, we see all that. So we need to shift our thinking. 
So like I've talked about with the nuclear triad, right? The, the three legs of the, of the nuclear deterrence we have in the U.S. Submarines, excellent deterrent. They go out, they go under, they're invisible, they're stealth. Nobody knows where they are. Any one of them could wipe out China, wipe out Russia, technically wipe out both. The deterrent is excellent. You can't find it. You can't stop it. Those missiles are coming no matter what you do, right? Great deterrent. Uh, bombers. The B-21 bomber, the first 6th gen combat plane, get those in large numbers. They can fly right into Chinese air defenses, drop their standoff munitions, and those can fly deep into China and hit whatever targets. Excellent deterrent, okay? Uh, and for Russia as well. But the ground-based strategic defense, the Sentinel missile program, is an ICBM, an intercontinental ballistic missile. China doesn't have a lot of those. They have, they had 12. They've got like 50 silos put out at one particular site now, so that they're sort of implying that they're building more. Uh, but basically, if China launched their missiles at us, our missile shield would almost certainly shoot them all down. Now, obviously, if one even one warhead landed and say we lose Los Angeles, that's still a heck of a loss. I mean, strategic weapons are... They're, they're horrible for that reason. And like Ronald Reagan and the uh, Manhattan Project scientists before him, I'm a believer that they shouldn't exist at all. If, if they exist, they should, you know, the U.S. should keep a few warheads uh, and we should put them to the purpose of planetary defense. And, you know, they'd be a deterrent against especially horrific uh, uh, conflict. But, you know, in any case, they really shouldn't exist. And it's unfortunate that they do. But that they do, we can deter China very easily. This ground-based strategic defense, the Sentinel missile, is an 85 to $100 billion program to replace the Minuteman three missiles. We have about 450 of those in three um, missile, uh, I say missile sites, you know, you know, general geographic areas where we have these missile fields and the, and the silos are out there interspersed along, along uh, you know, the highway in, in Minot, near Minot, North Dakota, and in Montana, and there's another field at the corner of Wyoming, Nebraska, and Colorado. In any case, we have these three missile fields, 450 of these missiles ready. But the whole point of, this, of ICBMs is that you don't use them. They can't be used for anything. They have no other military purpose but to sit in the ground and be ready to be fired at a moment's notice. And no, submarines can't launch as quickly, but they're still there, which makes them a deterrent, right? The bombers, we get them in the air, they're still a deterrent. But submarines can be used for other things. If we just decommissioned our nuclear missiles, those ballistic missile submarines can fire conventional munitions, and they basically become attack submarines, bigger, slower attack submarines, but attack submarines nonetheless. The bombers, the, like the B-21 Raider, can drop conventional munitions as well, right? So they have multiple missions that they can perform that are not limited to nuclear warfare. ICBMs sit in the ground and we want them to stay in the ground. The whole purpose of this weapon system is that we never use it, right? Because they can, they can be launched. You know, Russia's uh, primarily focused on their ICBMs. And I say, we can cancel the GBSD. We don't need the Sentinel missile. Over the next 25 years, we'll slowly phase out the Minuteman 3s. We can extend them for a little bit longer. We'll slowly phase them out. By the time they're phased out, Russia won't really be a concern anymore, and we'll be able to deter them with bombers and submarines, just like we can deter China with those. A hundred billion dollars of defense spending. So you know, all these people, we've sent a hundred billion to Ukraine. It's terrible. We could save that money right now by canceling one military project that's entirely focused on Russia, really has no relevance to China, and we don't need it. 
Okay, we don't need three legs of the nuclear triad. We can have a duad. <laughs> we can have a two-leg stool, I guess. Um, you know, we'll, we'll stand on two feet and on two legs with the submarines and the bombers. So anyway, again, that's a way of shifting focus to China. So when I get back from the break, I'll talk about the war games, what resulted from those, and what we need to do, and how we need to, what we need to be thinking about as our government procurement will have you, what we the people should be thinking about in the next couple of years as we have elections, we have to vote, we have to think about who we're voting for, and why, and uh, what we can do about China. After a day of recording uh, these podcasts, I really enjoy having a good cigar. I love the cigar lifestyle, going to cigar lounges and meeting interesting people to talk to. It, it really is an interesting lifestyle and I enjoy my uh, various scotches, whiskeys and, and other uh, interesting drinks that I, I find along the way. If you're interested in lifestyle and uh, especially uh, the lifestyle surrounding cigars, there is nothing better than the Cigar Aficionado magazine. Uh, they have a subscription. You can get four issues a year. I love getting my cigar aficionado. Uh, I immediately take it out, look through it. Uh, love the ads. You know, it's funny. I, nobody, nobody likes the ads, but I like the ads. It's always interesting to see what's in there. And they rate cigars, and I always find some really great cigars to go look at and uh, get a good smoke. So sign up for uh, Cigar Aficionado. Subscribe and uh, get your issue today. Welcome back from the break. Uh, now I'm going to talk about what is necessary to deter China. So this summer, uh, this last summer, 2022, the Center for Strategic and International Studies conducted a series of war games, in a very simple sort of board game fashion, uh, sort of pitching different scenarios as to, you know, the U.S. and China. You know, what would happen if the two went to, to war and had a conflict? Now, why am I talking about this now? It's taken about six months for, uh, for us to chew on this. Uh, the news came out that the war games had taken place last August, and then uh, these are declassified. These are not like the classified war games that, say, the Marine Corps has conducted that are top secret, and you, you, can't, you can't know what's going on there. But they've made a whole bunch of decisions based on those war games. In any case, uh, these war games are public. They're declassified. They're kind of in board game fashion. They're rolling dice and, and you know, moving pieces on a board. Uh, kind of like the, the Access and Allies board game. And it was done very deliberately this way uh, to allow for simple analysis. And, you know, you have military experts of various kinds governing the Chinese forces, the Taiwanese forces, the American forces, and so on. So that uh, as each move takes place, as each turn is taken, uh, they're able to uh, play out the, the scenario. Uh, anyway, uh, so it's taken about six months for the defense world to digest all of this. And we get a lot of different commentators talking about it, a lot of articles written, people kicking it back and forth. It's finally mature enough to talk about, uh, really, because it was kind of a uh, the results were kind of they're not surprising, but there were shocking elements of them. If you want to learn more about these war games and 
understand them more, you can go to YouTube or Rumble and, and there are videos about them. Uh, Sandbox News by Alex Hollings. Very good if you want defense news. I love his procurement stuff and he gets technical with stuff. I, I love that. Um, his video on the TR3 package for the F-35. Great. Just awesome stuff. So can't recommend that enough. One podcaster to another. Alex Hollings, Sandbox News. Very good for defense news. Anyway, so they ran these uh, these scenarios. They ran you know 25, 24 scenarios on on what you know what happens in this war. And in twenty two of them, the United States ultimately prevailed. That is, Taiwan was not captured by China. One of the two where China captured Taiwan was a scenario they called Taiwan alone, and. It's kind of obvious how that was going to turn out. Basically, in that scenario, the U.S. and our allies did not get involved, and it was just China and Taiwan. That's going to be a very one-sided conflict, and Taiwan goes down. So that proved what we already knew to be the case. So in 23 scenarios where the U.S. became involved in the conflict between China and Taiwan, uh, in all but one of those, the U.S. prevailed. So what does that tell you? We probably win. Is it possible for China to win? It's possible but we probably win. But the things that we learned in this uh, war game, holy mackerel. Let me just go through a few of them to give you the shock value. Uh, in one of the scenarios, uh, the U.S. lost as many as 700 military aircraft. Let's compute that for a moment. I mean, we're talking about a country, you know, we don't have tens of thousands of warplanes like we did in the Second World War, hundreds of thousands back then. Okay, so when we say we lose 700 Warplanes. We are talking about the $100 million F-35 fighter. We are talking about the uh, super expensive F-22s. We're talking about bombers that are just, I mean, B-52s, and, and they're priceless, right? We haven't, uh, we haven't built a new B-52 since 1962, right? Those bombers, the, the youngest of those bombers is older than my own mother. Okay, these are ancient bombers, but we re, we keep putting them, modernizing them. We're putting new engines in them now to extend their lives. Uh, the B-1 bomber as well, you know, swept wing supersonic bomber, which is which is a good thing. Uh, the B-2 uh, didn't build as many of those because the Cold War had ended, uh, and now the B-21 is being built. Uh, in any case, these are expensive aircraft that we're losing. Right. Seven hundred aircraft. And so the, the numbers range depending on whether things are favorable to the U.S. or not. Somewhere between 200 and 700 aircraft destroyed. And a lot of them on the ground. Most in most of these scenarios, most are destroyed on the ground or aboard ship. Uh, China has a lot of surface to surface missiles and those missiles can reach our bases in Okinawa and in Japan proper, in Korea. Uh, right. In, in these these guys can, you know, these missiles can fly over and they have enough of them that they can swarm our air defenses and um, overwhelm them and thus uh, cause a lot of damage on the ground. And potentially, if China attacks, they have the advantage of choosing the time of the attack, right? They can launch a surprise attack. We can't launch a surprise attack because we're not the aggressor. Now, I mean, in theory, if we had some solid intel... Right. If, if the you know, guy who works directly for Xi Jinping, you know, sends a, you know, a message, a, you know, some kind of clandestine message to us saying, you know, President Xi is literally about to he just gave the orders to launch the missiles. You know, we might be able to get some heads up, but chances of that happening are not very high in any case. Uh, 
So that was a big thing. A lot of aircraft destroyed. The other thing is aircraft carriers. Uh, in most of the scenarios, the U.S. lost at least two aircraft carriers. Uh, they were they were brought you know they came they sailed within China's missile defenses and China was able to sink them with silkworm anti ship missiles. Again, overwhelming the task force's ability to uh, conduct air defense and protect the carrier. So that goes back to, I, I believe someone said, probably me, uh, that we should cancel the two new uh, Ford-class carriers, the Doris Miller and its as-yet-named un, uh, as sister ship, thus unnamed, uh, CVN-81 and CVN-82, right? We don't need those. Uh, we really don't need the Enterprise either, but we can, we can live with that. Uh, we should build smaller, conventionally powered aircraft carriers with fewer, a smaller crew and fewer aircraft aboard so that if they're lost, we, we have a smaller asset that is lost and fewer lives that are lost. But also, um, you know, we, we don't need these big super carriers, you know, 5,000 sailors, 6,000 sailors aboard these carriers. That's a lot of people to endanger in a combat situation. And while a lot of them could get overboard before the ship goes down, the fact is um, that's a lot of lives to risk. Okay. Anyway, <clears throat> so, you know, these, these results show us that while we generally win, uh, we take heavy losses and the heavy losses are a real problem because you think about it. Even if we have a conflict with China, we still have to be able to deter everyone else in the world. Right. Russia, NATO can take Russia, right? That's that's not really our problem. Um, so, I mean, de deterring Russia, especially Russia's headed for collapse, that's not going to be such a big deal. But what about North Korea? What about Iran? I mean, if America has really taken a hit to our defensive capabilities, what an opportunity. What about asymmetric threats? You know, Islamic State, groups like that, pseudo states, terror groups. Uh, it could be open season. You know, America's lost a huge chunk of combat aircraft. We've lost a couple of aircraft carriers. We spent a whole bunch of money on this war. Anyway, overall, the lessons of a war with China are very much like the Second World War. At first, the Chinese meet with great success. They're able to overwhelm the, the forces that we have in the region in the short term, surround Taiwan with their navy. They have the largest air force in the world. They're able to protect, you know, to, to cover Taiwan um, attempts by the U.S. to get amphibious forces in to land were almost always unsuccessful. Uh, on several occasions, the entire amphibious force was lost um, more than once, right? So this happened in, in multiple scenarios. And even when they got to ground and established a beachhead, they were quickly cut off from resupply, right? So it's kind of like Guadalcanal, right? Um, but over time, as the U.S. gets more assets in region, uh, as we uh, are able to deploy more forces, uh, slowly but surely the tables turn. And uh, after about three weeks of fighting in each of these scenarios, uh, the U.S. ultimately kind of comes out to a situation where we're basically on top. In one scenario, the, the Chinese were able to get something like 30 divisions landed in, uh, in Taiwan. And that's a big problem. So, you know, even, even then, like we're still going to have to drive those troops out. But they're also quickly, you know, if they land troops in Taiwan, those troops are also cu quickly cut off from resupply. So the main thing is, looking at the results of this scenario, if I'm Xi Jinping, I don't want to order that attack, right? The longer that conflict goes on, the worse it gets. 
Uh, and I'd like to note, I mean, the U.S. has access to raw materials from around the world. Uh, we have uh, some industrial base. It's not nearly what it was. We need to rebuild our industrial base to a certain degree and our defensive capabilities. That's one of the things we need to do. Uh, but we, we still have access to that. If China attacks Taiwan, they're going to be largely isolated and cut off from the rest of the world. Well, China depends on imports for food, right? They import most of the food that they eat. So uh, the longer that conflict drags on, of course, China's economy suffers. People start to starve. It's a big problem, right? That, we want it that way. We, we don't want China to think that they could win that war and, and thus attack us. So looking at that, that big picture scenario, right, what are, what are our big takeaways from these war games? Uh, you know, it's bad deal for China. Uh, our policy up to this point of what we, what we call weaponized interdependence uh, on our part especially, but also on their part, uh, has worked, right? We can, we can prevent China from attacking us because they depend on us. Right. So uh, that is that is an interesting situation. Uh, real quick, uh, the, the Cato Institute has this article about do we need to contain China? And I just want to address that real quick. They're, they're saying, you know, well, China will just fall apart like the Soviet Union did. Yes. and No. I mean, the Soviet Union fell apart because Mikhail Gorbachev was incompetent. He was not willing to be the kind of hard-nosed Stalinist dictator that would have been necessary to preserve the Soviet Union. And if he had been, a number of Russian commentators have pointed out, he could have sustained the Soviet system and probably driven it well into the early aughts, right? Uh, with him at the helm, right? If he'd, if he'd had that kind of strong leadership. It's also possible that it would have crumbled uh, somewhere along the way. But uh, it fell apart because the leadership was incompetent. They were also trying to westernize. Like he was trying to create a capitalist economy, um, <laughs> free, you know, free speech, you know, glasnost, perestroika, all of these things, like, you know, all the stuff he was promoting, all of his reforms, you know, nothing like the Soviet Union. So the Soviet system was crumbling. But if we look at that as just a, a really bad day, on the train ride of Russian national power, then it's Vladimir Putin's Russia that is finally collapsing. And what we see here is that as the country approaches its collapse, it becomes more dangerous. Vladimir Putin knows that this is his last chance to take Ukraine and pose a serious threat to Europe and start trying to pick NATO apart. Right? If he'd been able to take Ukraine, then he'd start trying to, you know, squeeze Hungary out of NATO and squeeze Romania out of NATO and see if he can get the Baltic states, see if he can get Poland out. You know, uh, he'd, he'd be going after NATO countries, but it didn't work out that way. Uh, so I think it's safer to say, given who Xi Jinping is, how he's cracked down on his population, that he's much more Maoist than his predecessors. Um, you know, he had Hu Jintao unceremoniously escorted out of the party Congress, right? Um, the, the Chinese Congress. I mean, it was just, it, he is, uh, he is, you know, much more dictatorial and tyrannical than previous Chinese leaders. I think it's safe to say that China is dangerous. We do have to contain them. Okay. So there's that question. How? So let's talk about that right quick. Um, air defense. Air defense is the big thing. We learned from the from this war game scenario, we need to have better air defense. If our air defenses are being overwhelmed and we're losing military assets as a result, 
better air defense. Hello. Um, so that's, that's a big one. And, um, that's a combination of being able to down aircraft and missiles. So we have to be able to intercept their missiles, but China also has the largest air force in the world. And you can combat their air force over the long run with uh, ground attacks. So, I mean, we can, you know, launch cruise missiles and, and bombers can launch standoff munitions that will fly into China, damage command and control, communication centers, uh, destroy aircraft on the ground. We can do that too. Damage runways, damage support facilities, just, you know, destroy fuel dumps. We can do all of that, but not on day one. Right. On day one, we have a limited ability to strike some of the most precious of those targets. And then over time, we can slowly get in. So uh, we're going to have to deal with with those things. So those, that's big air defense. OK, then there's the Chinese Navy, the People's Liberation Army Navy or plan, as we call it, um, is uh, they, they have a lot of ships. And while those ships don't have the same kinds of capabilities that ours have, they're dangerous enough that they are able to pose a serious threat. They're able to shoot down our aircraft. They're able to, uh, you know, to damage our surface ships. In a lot of these scenarios, America lost several task forces, you know, somewhere between 17 and 20 ships total, which in our Navy today, you know, that's a lot of combat ships. I mean, that's a huge chunk. Okay. We're, we're headed toward having about 120 surface combat vessels. So if you think about losing 20 of them, that's one in six and we have a whole world to patrol. That's a lot. And aircraft carriers, right? We only have 12. Well, we have 11 now, but the John F. Kennedy will be joining the fleet soon. And that will give us, you know, 12. So um, just, you know, like lesson learned. Okay. Air, you know, the Navy is a big problem. The Chinese Navy is a big problem. And a lot of that, and this goes back to something that uh, Sandbox News um, talked about. And that is uh, you have several different kinds of anti-ship missiles we have out there. And this really depends on their effectiveness and they can be delivered by bombers. They can be delivered by F-18s, by F-35s, but we're going to need to, we're going to need to have a plan to defeat the plan. Uh, we, we need to have much better anti-ship capabilities. <clears throat> I've said it perhaps on the, uh, this will be like the umpteen thousandth time. Maybe we should have a hypersonic anti-ship missile. Duh. <laughs> Sorry, you know, it can, you know, fly at a ship at like Mach 20 and it can maneuver, right? It, it can avoid point defense and fly into the ship. Okay. Anyway, <sighs> end of rant. <laughs> so uh, that's a big one. Um, carriers and amphib ships being lost. This is big. This is big. In the Second World War, uh, and people, a lot of people don't know this, but transport ships were a huge high value target. At the Battle of Savo Island, when uh, Japanese Admiral Mikawa sailed his cruisers and destroyers into the harbor, he sank uh, several American heavy cruisers and, and an Australian heavy cruiser and uh, <clears throat> damaged a number of other ships. Mikawa did not reform his ships and attack the transports that were just sitting in the harbor, still more than half loaded with supplies and some troops, right? They'd unloaded some troops on the island. Uh, if he had sunk those that night, that first night, at Guadalcanal in, in Iron Bottom Sound there, uh, that would have been a huge strategic victory for Japan. America didn't have that many transport ships. That would have seriously impaired our ability to land any troops in the future, to resupply Guadalcanal forces in the present, right? It was a huge, huge thing, but he was afraid of air attack and he had to get up north of 
uh, American aircraft, you know, air, air range uh, by morning was his thought. Although people have noted that destroying those transports was so valuable, it would have been worth the loss of Mikawa's entire force. If, they, if he'd been thinking strategically, if, it, if his mind had been on the big picture, kind of Clausewitzian, as opposed to, you know, that sort of tactical situation, you know, I don't want my get, to get my ship sunk. Um, if he'd had the, that, that, you know, bigger picture in his head, he might have seen that. Um, during the Battle of Lady Gulf, the whole point was to draw Halsey's carriers away from the transports and offer uh, Admiral Kurita's force with the battleship Yamato and the Musashi, the Nagato, and uh, other battleships that they would be able to get within range of our transports at Lady, you know, landing on, on the island of Lady, and uh, destroy them. That would have been a huge blow for the U.S. right there. In fact, it's, it's really the only major blow Japan had any opportunity to deliver in the war. Uh, thankfully, uh, after the attack of uh, U.S. destroyers that fought so fiercely against the Japanese forces, uh, Kurita lost his nerve and turned back. If he hadn't turned back, the Japanese would have done serious harm. Would we still have won the war? Of course, the U.S. would probably have still have won the war, but we'd be talking about it a little differently. In this war, we're losing aircraft carriers. We're losing amphibious ships. I mean, these are huge. These are very important strategic assets, right? We can't afford to lose these things. They're incredibly expensive. $13 billion in aircraft carrier, my friends. That is a lot of zeros, Okay. Losing one of those with, again, five or 6,000 American sailors aboard, not cool. Okay? Not cool. Um, so if there's a conflict like that, we can't take our amphibious forces anywhere near Taiwan until we have air supremacy. That's an important lesson right there. Uh, that's going to take time. That could take two or three weeks to establish now. You know, if we improve our air defenses and build more aircraft and have a better uh, ability to combat them. Anyway, come back to that. Um, our carriers are going to have to stand off. At this point, you know, put one carrier in the Indian Ocean, have another carrier out in the Philippine Sea, way out past Guam, right? The planes are going to have to do mid-air refueling. Their, their aircraft can still move into the combat zone. But I mean, if the Philippines would let us utilize their bases, even if they don't become directly involved, if we can use airfields in uh, the Philippines to refuel, we basically won't necessarily need aircraft carriers, really. But the carriers have to stay way out of range of Chinese weapons. So what good are they? OK, what, what are we spending $13 billion a carrier on? We can save $26 billion by canceling two of them right now that we don't need. All right. Anyway, um, so that's a big thing. Supply chain. Again, in the long run, that's good for the U.S. In the short term, it's good for China. Um, how do we counter that short term uh, advantage? Stockpiles. Uh, this is a big issue. We're dealing with Ukraine right now. How do we get enough ammunition? Um, people talking about, well, we're spending all this money on Ukraine. A lot of the money we spend on Ukraine, in quotation marks, I'm making air quotes right now air quotes, quotation marks, uh, is actually spent here in the U.S. on our own defense industry, replacing weapons that we've sent to Ukraine, like the Javelin anti-tank missile. We've sent them a lot of, and, uh, of these missiles. We're still sending them more, but we're building our own stockpile back up. Okay? So that's big. We need to spend some time thinking about our industrial capacity and spend some money on it. Make sure that we have the ability to produce, you know, we have to have huge stockpiles of weapons for the short term, so that we can reduce China's victories early in the war. And we also have to have the ability to produce to keep our, our ships supplied. 
okay, and our aircraft supplied. I mean, you know, these missiles don't just make themselves. They don't just appear magically, okay? Ammunition, bullets, you know, uh, they, don't, they don't just appear magically. We need the, to produce these things. Um, uh, so that's, that's a big thing. Cyber war. And this is one that a lot of people have been talking about for a long time. The Chinese are the best at cyber warfare, so we need to be better. You know, a lot of our, you know, our electricity grid, uh, a lot of infrastructure in the U.S. is vulnerable to elect to cyber attack, to Internet attacks, you know, electronic uh, systems that are vulnerable. So we need to we need to do more to protect those. Uh, so these are these are some of the issues that uh, are needed. More aircraft. I mean, so this is what I'm talking about. What if we had a two ocean Navy act today? What if we just give the, you know, Unfortunately, I'd, I'd like to see us return to building more F-22s because they're kind of the ultimate fighter right now. Um, the Air Force has kind of put all its bets on a sixth generation fighter. The Russians are developing a sixth gen fighter. The Chinese say they're developing a sixth gen fighter. Uh, both of those countries have barely been able to build a fifth gen fighter. At this point, it's not clear how many of Russia's sixth, uh, fifth gen fighters even fly. Right? I mean, it's like what... What good are they? Okay, uh, you know these these Sukhoi aircraft. You know, they're they're supposed to be you know fifth gen fighters, and yet, I mean, what are they doing? They, they, if they don't fly, they're no good. Okay, uh, and the Russians have been able to build like five of them. All right, the the Chinese have only been able to build uh, ten or twenty of the J twenty, which is the the Chengdu J twenty, which is supposed to be their super stealth fifth gen fighter. It's not as stealthy as as the F thirty five or the F twenty two. Anyway, um, but unfortunately, the, the, we haven't been producing F-22s for years, and restarting that production line would be complicated. The F-35 is right here. It's right in front of us. The new TR-3 package will upgrade its technology. Air Force and the Navy have been kind of holding off on buying F-35s, waiting for them to have better capabilities. Now is the time. Let's buy some, you know? And I don't mean like five, like 500, like 1,000. We're supposed to have like... There's supposed to be like 1,700 F-35s flying around out there. We're nowhere near that. <laughs> We're nowhere near being able to produce enough F-35s to get anywhere near that number uh, among our allies and, and in the U.S. Um, as for the 6th Gen fighter, Russia and China are never going to have 6th Gen fighters. The, the technology, you know, they're, they're never going to be able to build it. We're, we're preventing China from gaining access to more modern technologies now. We have sanctions on Russia. They're not going to have the ability to build these. We, we in the West have kind of dubbed, because McLean has the contract for it, we've kind of dubbed the 6th Gen fighter in, in Russia, the MiG-41. Uh, we're never going to see the MiG-41. The only 6th Gen fighters that might be produced outside the U.S. are going to be the Tempest program, which is uh, Britain, Sweden, Italy, and now Japan that have gone in together to develop that fighter. And uh, Spain, France, and Germany are developing a, a sixth-gen fighter. Ultimately, the Europeans and Japan are probably going to pull together into one program. So let's just call that the Tempest program. But ultimately, that's probably what they're going to come out with. Uh, so basically, the U.S. and Europe and Japan are going to be the only people who have a sixth-gen fighter because Russia and China will never have one. And the sixth-gen fighter is like a 12-year-old's dream. 
you know, you know, you just, I just sit there thinking of, you know, one of my boys talking about, <laughs> it's going to have a laser that can shoot down incoming missiles. It's got all these missiles that can launch this way and that way. And it's got all this electronic warfare stuff on it and it inter- integrates with the, the battlefield and it can do this. And it's got infrared sensors and it's got SIGINT, you know, signal and, and intercepted abilities. It's got all this stuff. And like some of that we already have on the F-35 and the TR-3 package and this kind of thing. But, you know, this six gen fighter is going to, it's going to have all the doodads and all the gizmos and it's super high tech and it's like that's great but you know that plane is going to cost like a billion dollars a piece how many of these things are we ever going to build right we are not going to have a hundred billion dollar planes that's a lot of money to spend on a sixth gen fighter like that um anyway the point is this idea of the sixth gen fighter uh i say we get we get the f-35s right in front of us let's let's buy some more of those last point on this um uh, so, you know, increase the Navy, more ships. We are building more ships. Uh, we are reorienting toward China, more airplanes, obviously the, the air defense issue and other stuff that I've talked about supply chains. Um, Taiwan needs to be a porcupine. I heard this term first, uh, you know, the Senate's been talking about this for a while. Ted Cruz talks about this in his podcast, the verdict, um, Taiwan needs to be a porcupine especially when it comes to air defense, Taiwan needs a very strong air defense. So like whatever we do that we develop new technology, new air defenses, deploy new air defenses, we need to make sure Taiwan has the world's best air defense system. For why? Because the more missiles and airplanes, Chinese missiles and airplanes that Taiwan can down, the better the the scenario for the U.S. Well, the allies, the better the scenario for the allies, right? Uh, they need to be able to absorb a lot of that and, and that helps us. Um, they also could use some newer tech in other areas uh, apparently, you know, we're talking about it. They're going to need tanks. They're going to need ground forces, uh, really sophisticated capability on the ground. Why? Because in most of these scenarios, the Chinese are able to land troops in Taiwan. And if they do that, the Taiwanese need to be able to fight back. Unfortunately, in almost all these scenarios, Taiwan is devastated, that's unfortunate. That's again, back to that point. The best way to win this war is never to have to fight it. And that's why I made the point about the Two Ocean Navy Act. If it had passed a few years earlier, it might have prevented that aspect of the war. And certainly, you know, Hitler was worth fighting and defeating. But the Japanese, you know, that's one of those questions in history. Like, you know, maybe we didn't have to fight the Japanese. Maybe they would have been forced to back down in China. Who knows? <clears throat> Anyway, <clears throat> but that, that serves my point. Taiwan needs more, uh, better ships, better submarines. Uh, Taiwan submarines are old World War II style diesel boats. Um, let's, let's go and spend the money and buy them for Type 212 submarines from Germany. Uh, these are the submarines behind the U-32 class, Israel's Dolphin II class that I've talked about before. And uh, the Italians have also bought uh, some of these. Uh, they can, you know, they have their diesel boats, but they're much quieter. They have um, air independent power, which allows them to run on very low levels of power with a hydrogen cell. So they don't have to surface to run their, uh, their diesel engines uh, as often. And um, they're very high tech. They can launch surface to surface missiles uh, in addition to launching torpedoes. And those would be much better deterrent against China. And that would be Taiwan itself. Right. So let's buy them a few. It'll cost a little bit of money. The Germans will be happy to have the the contract to build those. Um, 
you know, it's worth uh, some billions of dollars to build up Taiwan in this process uh, because, you know, we can do that. Um, just a note on cost. I've talked about canceling about $125 billion in projects, right? Canceling the Sentinel missile, that's about $100 billion right there. Canceling the, the Doris Miller and its sister ship, that's about $26 billion, $25 billion, somewhere around there. So, I mean, canceling those saves us a lot of money on those. So take that money and put it on air defense and building more aircraft and whatever. You know, let that augment our, our existing, uh, you know, our needs to deal with China and um, send some, you know, give Taiwan some better air defense and some submarines and some stuff. You know, the more Taiwan can do for itself, the better for us. And then our forces will be large enough to counter China. Um, but that's something we need to think about. Now, this conflict between the eagle and the dragon, as I like to say, uh, is a really serious prospect on the horizon, and we need to take it seriously. If we'd taken Japan seriously enough, we might have averted war with them. Let's let's avert this war. We've got about 20 years at most, uh, bef well, 10 years at most, I should say, before China's uh, situation changes, before things really hit home there. So let's take that time, you know, right now, build up a little bit, and make sure Xi Jinping stays uh, ensconced in China and not able to, to attack out of China. So with that, <laughs> I will talk more about China and continue to update you on these issues as we go forward. But that kind of explains where I'm at with China. It cost a little bit of money, but let's spend it and we can get some savings from other areas, redirecting other funds. Uh, and, uh, you know, let's deter China so we don't have to fight them. Anyway, when I come back from the break, talk about... In other news, the in other news segment, uh, and this pertains to something similar, uh, the maritime disagreements in the South China Sea and uh, the Philippines and China talking about that. And now for the In Other News segment. In Other News is a Facebook page that allows you to uh, get the news around the world, what's happening, uh, without having to uh, rely on the American press. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of news we don't get here uh, about things that go on around the world. <clears throat> and so if you go to In Other News, you'll get more of those stories and have a much better idea what's going on in the world. All right. So um, China has claimed the South China Sea. China kind of thinks about these things in, in sort of a, uh, a Go fashion. Go is a, a Chinese game similar to chess. It's more about capturing territory uh, than chess is, which is about defeating a king. Kind of an interesting commentary on Eastern versus Western thought, and that, that's why I raise it. But uh, they seem to think if they control the South China Sea, then they can control the trade that goes through it, which is, you know, only like five or six trillion dollars of trade every year. Um, and so that's created maritime disputes over maritime borders uh, with Vietnam, Malaysia, uh, with Indonesia, with the Philippines, right? The countries that are all around the South China Sea. Uh, so that's a that's a big issue uh, right there. And obviously that concerns everyone in the world because that's a huge chunk of the global economy they could they could shut off. Right. Uh, so. 
uh, you know, the, the Chinese deputy foreign minister, Sun Weidong, uh, met with the Philippine foreign undersecretary, Maria Teresa Lazaro, and they had several days of discussions recently. Uh, and they said, you know, as neighbors and partners, uh, they're going to remain committed to being good neighbors and, you know, all the, the stuff, you know, blah, 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 mutually beneficial cooperation and trust. Uh, but the point here is the two governments are going to engage in ongoing discussions about the issue, even though they haven't come to any conclusions. They want to seek a diplomatic solution. And this is part of the Philippines' larger sort of shift since uh, uh, the rise of the uh, Duarte presidency and now Marcos. Um, it's a wonderful name to, for a, a president of the Philippines. Anyway, the, um, in, in any case, the, the situation in the Philippines is that uh, in, in recent years, they have sought uh, sort of a, a halfway point. They want to be less an ally of the U.S. and friendlier to China, seeing themselves as more neutral, I guess you could say. And so this is part of that effort the, that balancing act that the Philippines are trying to play, being both, you know, friends to both countries. I think they're ultimately going to have to pick a side. And I think that it's pretty obvious which side they should pick because, you know, you don't want to you don't want to pick the losing side uh, of all the countries in the region. The only country that is very closely allied to China is Cambodia. Well, and, and North Korea, of course, that's not along the South China Sea, but Cambodia, so the Chinese Navy is conducting. Uh, joint exercises with the Navy of Com Cambodia, such as it is, a couple of sandpans and a gunboat. Um, I hope the uh, Chinese sailors have brought champagne because those little Cambodian boats will make great yachts for, for going out and sailing and, uh, you know, uh, booze and bikinis. But they're not going to be good for anything else in terms of war and combat. No, but it's all political. The, the whole point is, you know, Cambodia is showing which side of the of the conflict they're on, uh, such as, as it is, but they don't really matter. So it's not a big deal, but the Philippines do matter. The Philippines, uh, you know, a former colony of the U S uh, we were granting them their independence in 1942. And then the Japanese invaded, uh, you know, the, there's been a long and storied history between the U S and the Philippines. So, you know, this is, this is the situation where they are now. They're trying to be a little of both. And that's been an interesting direction for them to take. Um, but obviously, if somehow they can come up with a diplomatic solution, that would be great. Uh, obviously, China might be generous with the Philippines in an effort to try to placate uh, and patronize uh, Vietnam and uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, these other countries that are concerned. So that they can say, hey, look, look, you know, we played really nice with the Philippines. You know, that doesn't mean they're going to play nice with those other countries. But, you know, they could at least point to the Philippines. Hey, we played nice with them. Right. In any case, that's another news. You know, would you would you have known that the Philippine government was having high level talks with the Chinese government if you'd listen to the U.S. news? No, the U.S. news is eager not to cover anything that's going on in and around China. Certainly none of the things I've talked to you about today, which is why you come to Inside Israel News, where you get to know everything, <laughs> even if you're bored to tears. All right. Well, that's been a great episode. Um, I have wanted to talk about China for some time. I'm so glad I got an episode out about it. Uh, 
especially with all the stuff going on with Russia. Um, I'll talk more about that in another World News episode. Plenty of time on that. And of course, we're getting plenty of press about Ukraine and, and the things going on uh, over there. So with that, I will ask you to visit the Facebook page for Inside Israel News and in other news. Uh, check those out. Uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter. Inside Israel News is on Twitter and Instagram, uh, mostly on Twitter. Uh, it's more of a political discussion place. Uh, I also upload these episodes on YouTube if you want to listen there um, and, you know, keep keep uh, abreast of uh, the news <laughs> one way or another. Uh, appreciate if you would subscribe. Uh, please rate the podcast. Five stars will be appreciated. As always, four stars if it's not perfect, please. Uh, and, uh, that helps people find the podcast. Any, um, reviews you would like to leave, uh, much appreciated. If you want to reach out to me, tell me I'm wrong about something. Tell me I'm right about something. Tell me what you want to hear. Tell me what you're tired of hearing. Oh, Isaac, God, shut up about this or that. Uh, you can reach me through Twitter. It's probably the easiest way, uh, or Facebook. You know, if you have one of those, reach out to me there. So I will say as always, goodbye. Lahitrot.